everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. It's Kara Kandel, and I'm here with my intrepid co-host, the wonderful Gerard Robinson. Gerard, how are you doing today? Doing well. Always love your wonderful introductions. <laughs> pithy. I'm in a pithy <laughs> mood today. Um, so, Gerard, a lot, lot going on this week. Um, just like I didn't watch the last one, I'm not watching this convention too much, just reading about it in the news. Mm-hmm. But a lot going on in the NBA. We've got more yeah. protests. I'm seeing stuff flip up on my phone about other sports teams that I don't follow, but but will follow now because it's it, they're doing some interesting stuff here. Um, and and of course, we can't ignore what's going on uh, up in Wisconsin. Um, so let's say that this has been another very difficult, very tragic week, and happens um, right on the eve. I mean, the the day that this podcast will be released is the 65th anniversary of um of Emmett Till's murder. Um so this is a this is a sad time. This is a powerful time. We've got a lot to talk about today. And we're going to be very lucky to have with us um, um an authority on on Emmett Till and and on what happened to him and on the trial. So looking forward to that conversation. Um, but Gerard, I can't let this intro go without mentioning that you published a really great piece recently in USA Today. And oh, I'm going to have to let you tell me the title. Here it is. Many Blacks want more police presence research shows, but they also need better policing. Um, I have to tell you, my friend, I, I thought this was a really, really thoughtful piece. Um, so mean, and what I mean about that is like, you really made me think and you often do make me think. But uh, talk to us a little bit about like, why you wrote this? Tell maybe you can tell the folks um, a, a little bit about the content of the article. Sure. When I was the executive director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity, um, one of the things that we were tasked to do, and it was a good task, was to partner with Gallup and to put out a national survey to focus on what people who lived in what we call fragile communities throughout the country had to say about education, uh, K-12 and higher ed, what they had to say about jobs, the economy, entrepreneurship, and what they had to say about criminal justice. And uh, um, every year we publish a state of opportunity in America report. Uh, We did so this year, Uh, it was released within the last month. And you can go to advancingopportunity.org to see a copy of that. And in there, I always make sure I go to every section, but the one this year that was particular interest is what people had to say about the police. Now, data for this was collected uh, December to January, so it took place before um, the killing of George Floyd, but there were still a number of things going on in the local area, often not caught on film, that still influenced people's decision. Uh, We were able to gather data from 6,941 people living in 41 states, and I'll let you read more. You can also go to the USA Today newspaper for the article. But there's two things to take away. When, when we ask the question, do you want more police presence or not uh, in your community? In fact, the question is, would you, like, would you rather the police spend more time, the same amount of time, or less time than they currently spend in your area? Now, just on a gut check, when this question was raised, Uh, In 2017, uh, internally, if you were to ask me that question, I would have said 30% of the people at minimum would have said they want less police. 
And then in terms of maybe some amounts, maybe 10. Well, guess what? This year, um, Black residents, 8% said they want less police presence. And in fact, 52% said they wanted more. Now, that seems to just contradict everything we think about as relates to police and policing. Uh, it's more nuanced than that, but here's the big takeaway. People, Black people, are not saying that 8% want less police per se. What they're saying is they want more police, but without the brutality. They want more protection without being harassed or feeling like they're simply the ones to be preyed upon because of the color of the scent of their skin. They're saying, yes, police matter because we want to live in safe communities because our study last year identified that 53% of the people we interviewed uh, said the number one reason they would relocate to another area is because of crime. It wasn't education. It wasn't a job. Those things are important too. It was crime. And so black people want to live in safe neighborhoods, great places to raise their kids, protect their property values as well. But there's going to be a role for police there. So it's more to it than that, but I just wanted to at least highlight some of the high points uh, in the article. That's the one that people chose to focus on. But there are other points in there where a number of black people say they don't trust the police and um, more could be read. Yeah, I mean, it's I really encourage people to read this because I have to say really quickly, it struck me on two and two points. Number one, the data. <laughs> right. So in, in this national conversation, like so, so. Often it's not driven by data, and here you bring the data. But you also share some of your personal experience, both good and bad. And I, I thank you for that. And um, like I said, it really made me think. I think it'll make a lot of folks think, um, especially amidst all of this noise. And you know, here we are in this time. Um, Jacob Blake, <laughs> Kenosha, Wisconsin, is now is now paralyzed due to. Mm-hmm. Uh, police brutality. And, and we're seeing, you know, this is, this dialogue is not going away. It should not go away. Uh, thank you so much though, for your contribution to it. Um, well, we do have a cup. I have a, a little bit of a, a, a lighter story of the week that I would like to just bring to everybody's attention because this one, I opened the Boston Globe this weekend and I was like, oh, this is, this is what I needed. This is, um, you know, we, we need a little bit of happy sometimes. Right. And so here's the title. This is from the Globe magazine, um, by, by John Wolfson. And the title says it all, a math problem stumped experts for 50 years. And this grad student from Maine solved it in days. And the subtitle is that's ridiculous. Lisa Picarillo thought when she first learned about the Conway knot problem, we should be able to do that. And I probably mispronounced this, this woman's name and I, my apologies to you, Lisa, but everybody, you will not be surprised to know that I loved this a so much because she said that's ridiculous. B because this is a woman C because it just evokes goodwill hunting in our minds. And, uh, you know, who doesn't love that movie? Probably people will, will call us and say they don't love that movie, but anyway, it's a really good read. And, and I love this article and I love thinking about, you know, women in math solving problems. And this, by the way, is a young woman who like wasn't particularly into STEM when she was a kid, but just, um, really found, found somebody, uh, a teacher, a professor who sang to her and said like, Hey, listen, you, 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 you should do this. So great story. Highly recommended. How about you? Anything, anything else to share this week? 
My story is from the 74, and it is their take on electoral politics. In particular, I think like your title, this title will tell you everything you need to know. The Veep Stakes is taking over, but the education world Ooh, wants to the know beep stakes. <laughs> who will replace Secretary Betsy DeVos. Uh, yeah. Let me say from the beginning, I hope that she stays. But from reading this article, it sounds like she may be hinting that she will leave. So if she leaves, they talk to some of our colleagues uh, at Fordham and at the Center for American Progress, and they're putting out names. Uh, if Biden wins. Gerard Robinson, right? No, absolutely not. They should not go to the bottom of the barrel for Gerard Robinson. <laughs> Great people uh, to do work with. If Biden wins, um, there's at least a focus that maybe he will pick someone with higher education credentials. Uh, they mentioned a couple of presidents, uh, one being Dr. Robinowski, uh, University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, I believe. And he was on my short list of names when Secretary Clinton was running for office. Um, he has been president there for a long time. He's a big proponent of STEM, as you happen to talk about. He's got a strong track record in that area, and I think he'd be great. Uh, they also mentioned um, former Arizona government, now governor, now former president of the University of California system, uh, system Janet Napolitano. Uh, who would bring in a lot of great skill set, also having been a member of the Clinton administration. So she's already got right. some great parts there. And, you know, it could be someone uh, at the local level. For Trump, if he wins, a uh, senator from Nebraska, uh, Ben Sasse's name has come up. And in fact, until reading this article, I had no idea that he at one time was a college president. So, yeah, I was surprised by that, too. Yep. And of course, Mitch Daniels' name uh, um, will come up a sure. lot. President of Purdue, uh, he's pretty clear that he won't take it uh, for a lot of reasons. I think he'd be a great choice having been the governor of Indiana, real innovator at Purdue. So there's some good names out there. And I'm glad that 74 you know, put this out because, yeah, uh, talking about the VPs, great. And uh, there'll be more of that. But yes, who is going to be the one sitting in the Department of Ed? Yeah, well, I would still vote for Gerard Robinson any day, but I got to tell you, in, in, in either administration, but I got to tell you, it, it has to be a really difficult job. I, I can't, it's not one that I would, not that anybody would ever ask, but not that I would want either. I can only imagine uh, what a difficult job that is. You know, one uh, name I didn't mention that was also in here is uh, Dr. Linda Darling Hammond. That's right. Um, and she's always mentioned. Yeah, yeah, she's on my short list for uh, yeah. for people. Premier researcher, really, you know. No, she's she would she would bring, unlike some of the other candidates, and everyone brings strengths and developmental needs. She would bring an understanding of the teaching profession from a research and practice perspective that we have not seen in a secretary uh, in a long time, if ever. And at a point when we are talking more about teaching, more about preparation, what COVID has done, um, like it or not, I think she she make a good choice for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I'd also throw in John White's name. I'd throw in uh, sure. Barbara Jenkins' name from Florida. And, of course, you're going to have uh, Carvalho's name from uh, Miami. So there's some good people out there. But. We'll There's a lot of good people. Yeah. And an embarrassment of riches. Well, all right, Gerard, coming up after this short break, we are going to be speaking with Devery Anderson and, and boy, this is going to be an interesting one. So right back in a minute. 
And listeners, we are back with Devery Anderson, who is the marketing manager at Signature Books, which is a scholarly press in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's published several books and articles on Mormon history, and his 2015 book, Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement, has received wide acclaim as definitive. Producers Will Smith and Jay-Z are currently developing a civil rights miniseries based on it. His next book is on the case of Clyde Kennard, an African-American student who tried to integrate Mississippi Southern College in 1955. Devery holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah and a master's degree in publishing from George Washington University. Devery, welcome to The Learning Curve, and thank you for being with us, especially um, on the eve of this, well, it is the eve when we're recording, but of this really important um, anniversary. Welcome to The Learning Curve. Oh, well, thank you so much, and I'm very happy to be here today. Fantastic. So, you know, we've um, we've had quite a few um guests on this show who have studied the civil rights movement, who have, um, who have talked to us about famous figures, both in the lead up to the civil rights movement and famous figures who were pivotal in the civil, civil rights movement. But you, um, you have written a book that, um, that describes, as, as we said in the introduction, one of the precipitating events really. And, um, in your book has been called exhaustively researched. Um, you've incorporated in new information that, that folks had never before really understood. I think too many people still don't understand this pivotal event in American history. And, um, but it's also, it's been called the definitive work on this topic. So for our listeners, could you summarize the events at Brian's grocery store and meat market in Money, Mississippi, which led to the horrific death of 14 year old Emmett Till? Certainly. And so Emmett Till was in Money, Mississippi. He was from Chicago. He was just in Mississippi to spend the last couple of weeks of his summer vacation uh, before school started again. And uh, he, he had been there just four days at this point. He was 14 years old and was spending time with cousins who lived in Money, Mississippi. And so on August 24th, after a few days of picking cotton with his uh, relatives there, uh, he and his cousins went into Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. They drove about three miles into town and went to this store. They were on their way to a cafe, actually, but it was, wasn't open yet for the evening. So they saw a checkers game going on in front of the Bryant store. Uh, they stopped and joined in. And what happened from there is uh, comes from Emmett Till's cousins who were with him, who talked to the press over the next several days. Emmett went into the store at some point, bought some bubble gum. He was waited on by the store owner's wife, 21-year-old Carolyn Bryant. And um, he, he was in the store briefly by himself, don't really know what happened in there. One of his cousins sent in another boy who was worried that Emmett's fun-loving personality, kind of his um, practical joking style and the way he liked to be the center of attention may not go over very well in Mississippi, him being a black youth, a black male. And so this cousin came in, they left together, and Carolyn Bryant followed him out. At that point, Emmett, just to be funny, just kind of waved at her and said bye, instead of saying bye, ma'am. And, and really, you know, even talking to a, a white woman at that point would, there have been, would have gotten him in trouble. And so uh, she got upset, walked towards her car or walked towards a car that was there. And then Emmett whistled at her. 
scared everybody who was with him because they knew this taboo had been broken. They got in the car and left. Three days later, in the middle of the night, uh, two men came to the home where Emmett Till was staying at. It was his uncle Moses Wright. And there were several boys in the home at the same time. Emmett's cousins uh, and Moses Wright's three sons were there. And two men came and asked for the boy from Chicago who did that talk. Um, they went around the house with a gun pointed at anybody who was there, found Emmett Till, took him out at gunpoint, drove off with him. He was never seen alive again. Three days later, his body surfaced in the Tallahatchie River. He'd been brutally beaten, shot, and a 75-pound cotton gin fan had been weighed had been tied around his neck to weigh him down, but his uh, legs uh, surfaced, and that started the news first nationally, then internationally, that uh, happened as a result of this case. And of course, the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is is very important history, and I think all too often in in our history books, we don't actually um, confront the the real horror of of what happened to Emmett Till and and countless others. Um, I'm I'm curious for you to tell us a little bit more about your research process. Um, so you know, I, as I said, I think a lot of Americans, well. Probably not enough. <laughs> Probably not enough of us know Emmett Till's name and the significance of what happened to him. Um, but what was there new information that you uncovered in your research that you brought to light? And and if so, what what um, how did you uncover it? Uh, who did you talk to? What 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 sources were you looking at? Well, there are a variety. I, I I did the the typical stuff you would do in writing history in researching in archives and that type of thing. Went over all the newspaper uh, coverage I could find because I wanted to track down, first of all, I wanted to get that information in the book, uh, but I also wanted to track down the reporters and journalists who covered the trial and found all the ones I could who were still living and lucid and and most were willing to, to sit down with me and to uh, let me ask them about their memories of this event. And since it was such an important event, most remembered it very well. I also uh, interviewed any living witness uh, to the store incident, to the kidnapping, and even to the murder, and, uh, and, and talked with them. Now, there's new information I was able to get by talking to people who hadn't really been talked to before, or at least on the record. Um, I talked to family members of both... Uh, uh, Roy Bryant, Carolyn Bryant, and J.W. Milam. These are people who provided good information to me. They hadn't ever really talked to anybody before, but they were a bit fearful of repercussions. And so I was able to use the information they gave me. I couldn't cite them by name. So they're listed as confidential sources in the book. And there were four of those, I believe. And also, around the time I began researching the book, the FBI opened the case and started doing a thorough investigation because there was evidence that there were people still living who may have been involved, and they wanted to try to prosecute those people if the evidence was there. And in the course of the FBI investigation, they found the original trial transcript, uh, found the murder weapon, and even located other people who were involved. One man was a minister who took a deathbed confession from 
one of wow. the men wasn't one of the men who were tried, but one of the other men who was involved. There are others that were involved in the killing that didn't that were never tried. And even though his test his um, testimony of that event is in the FBI report, his name was redacted. But um, I was able to find him and talk to him on the record. He was fine with giving me his name and provided some additional detail um, that the FBI report didn't contain. So I talked to people like that. Um, Willie Reed, who was the a sharecropper, 18-year-old uh, youth who um, saw Emmett Till on the back of the tr truck after the kidnapping and, and heard him being beaten to death in this shed on this plantation uh, adjacent to the one that Willie Reed uh, sharecropped on, uh, I talked to him and uh, got his firsthand account of what he witnessed that day. There were a lot of people like that. I, I know I interviewed a few dozen people for the book as well as you know the archival research, and I made several trips to Mississippi and Chicago. One of my earliest sources, even before I thought of writing a book, was Emma Till's mother who I interviewed for a class project, which kind of sparked this whole ongoing research for me. And over a six-year period before her death in 2003, I talked to her numerous times over the phone. And so establishing that connection early on uh, brought this case, you know, certainly uh, took it to a different level with me and, and made it more personal. It was a historical event that I suddenly felt a part of in some way. And so... It took on new meaning at that point in it, but it motivated me to want to continue and just gather everything I could find because I wanted to write the book I, that I always wanted to read on the subject. The books that had been written up to that point weren't comprehensive in telling this, you know, the story. They would tell part of it, leave out certain events I thought were just very important, or they perpetuated certain myths about the case that no one ever bothered to look into. Uh, they just would repeat something another source said. And I had to weigh through a lot of contradictory tellings of the story and try to determine which were the most accurate by going to the earliest sources. And if those people who provided those sources told the same story multiple times and it all added up, that's the version I would tend to go with. And so it took a long time just to sort out the contradictions and that type of thing. And so there was research and there was a lot of writing and there was a lot of uh, analysis that had to go into it before it was finally done. Wow. It sounds like a painstaking and often difficult process. Um, you mentioned Emmett Till's mother and she herself has written a memoir. She's written a book called The Death of, Inno of Innocence. Could you tell us a little bit more about her and her bold, famous decision uh, to make Emmett's funeral public with an open casket? Well, that decision to, to have the open casket and, and her words were basically I, after she identified her son's body and saw what had happened to him, she said, there's no way I could ever tell this. Uh, people have to see it for themselves. And that was a very important moment because that's what gave the case legs really in the press and in public consciousness because it changed uh, people. It was a very powerful thing for her to do. It was a brave thing. She got a lot of criticism for it at the time, but it was a very brave thing to take your only child, put them on display like put him on display like that for the world to see 
for a purpose, and it was a purpose that she would have to make some sacrifices. Her her private mourning over this really got put on hold for a long time. She didn't have time to mourn. And so it was a difficult thing, but something she knew she had to do. And it it generated a lot of criticism. Uh, people thought she was just out for publicity and stuff like that. So that's a, she had to endure all of that as well. But for her, it was it was something she had to do. As far as the person she was when I first came to know her, for my first phone call with her, I was very moved and, impre- and impressed by her lack of bitterness or hatred. And she said, she told me that would have, had she let herself become bitter and hateful, it would have just consumed her. She would have, that would have defined her life and she, she would have just been angry and accomplished nothing. And she wanted to make sure her son's death wasn't in vain. That started at the funeral uh, by trying to wake people up, but also just the just the relationship she had with kids after that. She never had her own children, any any more children of her own. She had some stepdaughters, but she started the Emmett Till Foundation with her mother and also the Emmett Till Players, which were kids that would perform uh, by reciting the speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King. And she took hundreds of kids over the years in the early 70s until her death, training them the, and to, to perform. And she took a lot of kids that were at risk. She told me that there were kids that were destined for the streets that went on to become doctors, lawyers, and ministers uh, because of the work she did with them and how it helped their confidence. Their, it, it, they were able to you know, embrace the issues she was trying to teach them, and it changed their lives. So she lost one child, but she she gained and helped so many others. And she always saw it that way. And one of the questions I asked her once, in fact, this is on my first interview with her also, I said, how do you feel now after all these years, and this is 40 years after the murder, 41 years or so, how do you feel about uh, the men who killed Emmett? And I'll never forget what she said. She just said, I don't feel hate. I don't feel love. I don't feel anything. She said, I, I went on to become a benefactor to society. They went on to become scourges of society. And it's not that she wished that on anybody, but that was just the consequence of the lives that they each lived. They went in different directions. And so she was able to see that although they didn't go to prison, a literal prison with walls, they created a prison without walls. It was just a consequence of, of what they did. And as a consequence of her wanting to turn that negative into a positive, her life went in a completely different direction. So she didn't have time to hate. She had time to love and to educate. And she had that satisfaction throughout her whole life that she made a difference, that Emmett didn't die in vain. And that was her, that was certainly her goal. And so she was a very exemplary person, someone I certainly looked up to and admired. Um, and that, that was something I, that, that I uh, saw in her from day one. Thanks for joining us. This is Gerard. I've never had a chance, of course, to meet her personally, but watched videos and everything you say about her uh, seems to be true, just her spirit and her tenacity. You talked about those who became scourges. So let's let's take a look at a few things. So Emmett Till's main kidnappers and murderers were Roy Bryant, you know, the husband of Carol Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Millam. Even though Emmett's great-uncle, Moses Wright, an unsung hero in the case, serving as a witness publicly identified the two white men in court. 
And they were acquitted by an all-white jury, you know, in deep South politics. We've seen that a lot of, a number of times. Before, they later confessed the crime to Look Magazine. In the decades since, I mean, what exactly has happened to Carol Bryan and Roy and to Millam and to Moses Wright and to other key figures? Well, that's a good question. And, and that question is the one thing that I – those are the questions I had the moment I learned about this case. And my, my need to research right away from, from the moment I first heard about this in 1994, those are the questions I had to answer. I was just so curious what happened to everybody, uh, the good guys and the bad guys in the case. So Moses Wright, um, he and the other witnesses there who lived on who, the sharecropping witnesses who testified, they all had to flee basically right after the trial. They moved to Chicago. Moses Wright did. Willie Reed did. Another woman named uh, or a woman named Amanda Bradley. Uh, left um, because she felt threatened after after testifying. Moses Wright uh, briefly uh, stayed in the news after moving to Chicago because he did some speaking in November of 1955 for the NAACP. So he was flying around the country uh, speaking. But after that, uh, it, the case just fell out of the news for a long time. He uh, got a job as a janitor in a nightclub and later in a, in a restaurant. And he died in 1977 of cancer in a nursing home. It was a hard adjustment for him because he was, uh, had been a sharecropper, you know, all of his adult life. He was a minister too, but for, for a living, he, he was a sharecropper and it was a hard adjustment to live in the country, sharecrop a few months of the year. And then suddenly you're in Chicago and he's having to work, uh, you know, steady at his age and had to work until close to his death. So he had to adjust. It was a big sacrifice for him and his family to leave the South, but they certainly uh, saw the benefits of leaving Mississippi as well once they left, but it was hard. Um, Milam and Bryant, uh, after the trial, within a couple of months, they because they had been acquitted, they couldn't be tried again. Uh, they were approached by... Uh, a journalist who wanted them to, who offered them money to tell the story of kidnapping and murdering Emmett Till because they had the the attorney, the, neither the attorneys nor the reporter inquiring had any doubt that these men killed him and figured for the right price they would talk about it. And so they did. And in the January 1956 issue of Look Magazine, this story by, uh, journalist William Bradford Huey appeared and Milam and Bryant tell this story about how they did kidnap and murder Emmett Till. The problem with that story is that because the other people who were involved with them could still be tried, they uh, erased them from history, basically. Uh, they became the only two that were involved in this. And that story stood for a long time as the official account. And you can understand that because it came from their mouths. And here we have a confession, so to speak, from them. And everybody knew from then, if there were any people who were doubting still that Milo and Bryant killed him, they now knew. And But they didn't get the full story. They got a narrative that really only created more problems than it, than it solved by them uh, confessing. 
so those two were basically run out of town after uh, this article came out because even though people knew they were guilty, they didn't want to hear it from them. They figured they could just help them get off and never have to think about it again. Well, now they were confronted with this article. And so nobody wanted them in town. And so Milam and Bryant both moved to to Texas, East Texas, for a little bit. The Milams moved back after a few years. Roy and Carolyn Bryant stayed in Texas for a little bit. Then they moved to uh, Louisiana, stayed there till the early 70s, moved back to Mississippi to the Delta again, not back to money, but not far from money, a town called Ruleville, and Roy opened up another store. And back then, you know, this is the age before social media and 24-hour news and people being constantly connected. Back then, he could move back to town 15 years later and uh, just work in a store and just fall into obscurity. Nobody really knew who he was. And, and he was able to live there peacefully for, for years. In 1975, he and Carolyn divorced, and she, uh, in the divorce papers, accused him of um, habitual drunkenness and abuse. And so uh, they divorced. They had one minor child. He had to pay child support on, had to have supervision uh, to see the child. And he, he eventually, his store burned down. Uh, he stayed in Ruleville till his death in 1994. His store burned down. He didn't have insurance. He started selling watermelon and, and fireworks off the back of his pickup off the side of the road. Uh, he developed cancer and he died in 1994. And he, you know, he was... He was broke, pretty much. He uh, he remarried um, in 1980, and his wife was an accountant at Parchman Prison, I believe, and she since passed away too. Milam died in 1980 of uh, cancer. He lived in poverty, pretty much. His wife was a hairdresser and had to had to work for years because J.W. couldn't hold a steady job, and they lived in a very rundown home in Greenville, Mississippi, and it was a former black church that was turned into a home. They lived in the black section of Greenville, uh, but people really didn't pay much attention to him. I don't think people really knew who he was. Back then, you could they could easily pull that off. When they both died, their, their obituaries didn't even say anything about Emmett Till. There was no accompanying story. Uh, Bill Miner, a reporter, a well-known reporter, did catch uh, on to Roy Bryant's death eventually and wrote an article about it. But those two pretty much died um, and no one thought a thing of it. No one inquired. No one even noticed when their obituaries were published. Carolyn Bryant, well, Roy Bryant's wife, I'm sorry, J.W. Milam's widow died in 2014, just a few years ago. And uh, she never really recovered from the murder. People who, family members of hers told me that she appeared genuinely depressed ever since the murder. And her, and even though she stayed with JW, uh, there were rumors that they divorced. They didn't. They lived pretty much separate lives. And she, it was just rare that she would smile. She just came across, and her family you know, told me this, that she just appeared depressed. And, and I asked, is this just her personality? Was she like this prior to the murder? And they said, no, prior to the murder, she was very outgoing, very social. Um, but the murder changed her, and she stayed with this man. They lived separate rooms, separate lives, really, and I don't think they had much of a relationship. 
Carolyn remarried a couple of times. Uh, her second husband died only a few years after they married, and a third husband, uh, uh, they divorced. And so her name is Carolyn. After her third husband, her name is uh, last name is Donham now. So Carolyn Donham. She lost two of her sons after Roy's death. Uh, Roy Bryan Jr. died not long after. He died of uh, he had cystic fibrosis, and her son uh, died in 2010, I believe, of heart failure. And so she now she moved from Mississippi after that, and now lives with her remaining son uh, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. She does have a daughter that was born a few years after the trial, and she lives in Arizona. So she has two surviving children. She's now 86, and she's um, pretty much blind and in a wheelchair and um, not sure how she is mentally, if she's fine, if she struggles there with, you know, effects of age. But I do know that physically she's she has major challenges right now. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, sad on several fronts, but um, this is where we are. So when Emmett Till was murdered, it only occurred 15 months after the U.S. Supreme Court uh, gave its landmark ruling in Brown v. Board of Education. And I had the honor of uh, September of uh, last year of having Cheryl Brown Henderson, uh, one of the Brown daughters, uh, talk about the case uh, at 65 and, and what it meant. And she, too, put it in a broader historical context of Brown and the meaning of American life at that time. The same to you. Could you give us a wider historical context about the event, including, you know, what it was like in the Jim Crow South as well as the Mississippi Delta in what some people call uh, the most southern place on Earth? Yes, the Mississippi Delta. Because it was so it was the it was the cotton capital. And so that crop being what how important it was to the Delta sharecropping. Uh, is is the primary way that black people earned a living, and it was the closest thing to slavery, really, that still existed. It was, you know, black people were indebted to the the, the plantation owners and the people and the plantation managers, and you know they would live on the property, they would um, share crop, and even though um, things were changing and things were becoming mechanized by then it was slow to develop in the delta so you saw people sharecropping you know even into the early 60s and maybe even beyond that in some in some cases so the delta was just different for that reason and it kept black people black people there impoverished more so um, tied to the plantation it was hard to get off it hard to get out of poverty and so um, it was the closest thing to slavery that just really remained in the South and the Delta uh, stands out for that. Now, as far as the, with the Brown decision, whenever there's a, a major push forward, there are several steps back that follow with the Brown decision. Here we have the, the Supreme court saying segregation, at least in the public schools is unconstitutional. That helped, Black people feel emboldened as a result of that, that they had this ally as uh, one of the branches of government was suddenly an ally. It created a backlash in the South immediately. In Mississippi, the citizens councils began forming right away. And they were, it was, 
you know, described as a white collar Ku Klux Klan. Um, and it really was. This group was determined to fight the Brown decision and to get it overturned if possible, but certainly to defy it. And branches of the Citizens Councils formed. I think there were 65 counties in Mississippi, and all 65 had branches shortly, and people were paying dues, and so it was well-financed, well-supported. And so anybody who uh, created waves, publicly supported integration, um, they would go after these people. They would try to crush them economically, whether you were black or white. They'd publish your name in the paper with your address. It would alert employers, uh, creditors. They would cut off credit. So it kept people quiet at the very least. Uh, and if they didn't have public support for, for integration, you know, that was a way of keeping it from ever happening. And so, the, so that was kind of this uh, resurgence of lynchings began as a result of, of the Brown decision. Prior to that, I mean, there had been this long era in the Jim Crow South lynching. There were thousands of lynchings throughout the South, several hundred in Mississippi over the years. That died down in time, uh, and there hadn't really been a reported lynching for a few years prior to the Brown decision. But after that, people saw this, they feared this slippery slope that, you know, they say segregation in public schools is unconstitutional today. What's next? Um, you know, complete uh, takedown of segregation and will there be interracial marriage, all those things. That's what they feared the most. And so uh, in fighting back, uh, if they saw black people uh, trying to uh, encourage voter registration, there were two lynchings uh, right in the months and weeks before Emmett Till came to town where some black men who were active in voter registration were killed because on the on the heels of the brown decision if you're out there encouraging blacks to vote then they'll have a say in government and that's going to uh, and who represents them and that's going to speed along integration so lynchings began rising again and the the governor's race was heating up and and five candidates for governor were all trying to outdo each other on who could be the biggest segregationist so all you heard in the news was segregation segregation this in this and the fears of what the country would look like if if integration uh, came to be in the South, all these horrible, ugly things, and they were making these predictions, and it kept people in a state of fear. Well, the governor's race was settled on August 23rd. It was the primaries, but in the South at the time, uh, the, the 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 office always went to to the Democratic candidate. There were uh, Republicans never ran. Uh, back then, so if you won the Democratic primary, you were you were going to win the office, and so that was settled the day before Emmett Till went into the store. And the day he went into the store, it was headlines, so that was the news of the day. And so, right up until the moment he got there, things are just heating up, and segregation, and maintaining segregation, and their way of life was the thing everybody was sensitive about and talking about so his his arrival in the delta when he came that timing really couldn't have been worse uh for people being stirred up and when when he was kidnapped a few days later why people were adamant that milo and bryant be acquitted even when they knew they were guilty because they saw 
them losing their way of life is a much bigger issue than the life of a 14 year old boy just being snuffed out. And, and that's, that's not anything that historians have had to kind of just determine over time. People were saying that in letters to the editor and in letters to the judge and the attorneys involved in the trial. They said, if we give on this, then we're going to lose everything. Those boys may be guilty, but just think what will happen if they're, if they're convicted. And that was a mindset of a good majority of, of whites in the South. And so you could see it had just reached this fever pitch um, of, of just hatred and determination to keep their way of life. And they didn't like outsiders having a say in what went on there. They were very sensitive to that. And so the fact that they are now being scrutinized by the North and everywhere else as a result of the Brown decision, that made them even more sensitive and more defensive of their way of life. So that's what black citizens had to put up with those who were, I mean, Emmett Till wasn't from there. He got killed, but the ones who were there living had to just watch every step they took after that, because you could be crushed economically. You could be forced off the plantation and be homeless. You could do any of that could happen if you were advocated for your rights as a citizen. Then. And it's such an important lesson, particularly for young people today, as not only we near uh, another presidential election, but just to understand some of the freedoms they have today that were nearly non-existent for possibly their great-grandparents, uh, not only in Mississippi, but also the Deep South, uh, but to also understand the shoulders and the sacrifices people have made uh, for us to get here. Devery Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today on The Learning Curve, um, especially on this important anniversary. And, um, and we thank you so much for your very important book. And again, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it and this chance to talk about it at this time. And so we're going to close out with just a reading of a short paragraph. And I'm looking at a uh, paragraph in a book uh, that talks about her work and her feelings and how it related to her son. I kept looking at him on the table and thought about what it must have been like for him that night. I studied every detail of what those monsters had done to destroy his beautiful young life. I thought about how afraid he must have been, how at some point that early Sunday morning, he must have known he was going to die. I thought about how alone he must have felt. I found myself hoping only that he would die quickly. I can never forget what I saw on the table and how I felt. I can never forget complete devastation I experienced when I realized for the first time, something would haunt me for such a long time to come. At some point during the ordeal, in the last moments of his precious life, Emmett must have cried out two names, God, Mama, and no one answered the call. Thank you for joining us. back after that excellent interview with um with the tweet of the week and um this one i found 
I I found pretty interesting, a little bit weird because I am by no means a gamer, but this is from the Wall Street Journal and it's uh, entitled, uh, um, the tweet says, video playing, video game playing has soared during the COVID-19 pandemic, fueled largely by boys who socialize why they play, but how much is too much? And I have to say this one resonated with me. It's a pretty good article from the Wall Street Journal. Resonated with me because um, my my boys are too young for video games. My 10-year-old girl could not care less about video games. She is sometimes forced to play them with her friends and she she tunes out really quick. Um, but I have heard from a lot of parents who say that video games have sort of are, are a curse and a blessing at the same time because they know that their kids are playing them a little bit too much. Um, but they also, at this time when working parents need care for their students, video games keep kids occupied. So really curious to see. There's already emergent research about whether video gaming is good for you, bad for you, all these other things. I recently read a report that said it's probably not as bad as we think. I'm also thinking about uh, the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and thinking that maybe social media is worse. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this more on the learning curve, but that is the tweet of the week. And a little update for our listeners. So next week, we will be speaking with Michelle. Re. Um, I don't think I even need to describe <laughs> what what Michelle Ree has done for education reform, but we will be back with Michelle Ree and I will have a guest host. It's going to be some female power next week, ladies and gentlemen, because we'll be back with Carrie McDonald guest hosting while Gerard is off, you know, at the spa somewhere having a good time, um, but really looking forward to that. And the other big thing to announce is that we are going to start releasing the learning curve now every Wednesday. So you can start looking for the latest episodes of The Learning Curve starting next Wednesday at noon and every Wednesday at noon thereafter. So until next week, dear listeners, have a good one. (laughs) 